If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we'll be at the very end of that chapter, beginning in verse 13, uh, as we'll read in just a moment through verse 18. Facing death is difficult. I have no real experience facing this on my own in my own life. Uh, the nearest I might have come is nodding off on the long drive up to Houghton a couple of times. Uh, one time in particular, my mom just gave me a dirty look. That never happened, mom. But uh, for those of you who aren't my mom, it happened once or twice. So um, I, I don't have much much experience with that in my own life, but many of you do have experience with that in your own life. You have experience as many of us do, uh, as, as death has encroached upon people that you love or people that you, you know. It is difficult to face it. There is a great uncertainty that hangs over death, and it is one of the harder terrors to face, not only for those who are going through it, but for those who have to face it and still live on. If you lose loved ones, it's, it's difficult to figure out what life is going to be like now that you have lost that person. The Thessalonians, as we are going to read today, have dealt with this, and they have come to experience death in their church, and they don't really know what to do with it. They, they don't know how to handle it, and as Timothy has come back and reported to Paul, clearly something that Timothy reported to him is this, this sort of unbearable grief that the Thessalonians are going through, and so Paul wants to help them. He wants to allow them to see the glory of Jesus, even in the death of these believers, and what's more, to be encouraged by them. We pray that, um, that we too can be encouraged by these words, not just in how we grieve for people who we've lost, but also how we ourselves can face death with great hope and great uh, certainty of what lies behind it. No doubt the Thessalonians in reading this were not only comforted in their own grief, but what's more and more important than that, even as they themselves would one day face death, hopefully they were encouraged in their own lives about these things. So let us read these important words from Paul, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of our God. The first thing that I would put before you today is that you need to temper your sorrow in the Lord. Temper your sorrow in the Lord. We don't honestly know much behind this particular passage. That is, there, there had to have been something that was going on in the Thessalonian church that made Paul want to write this. And as people have come to this passage, what they've done is because it's speaking of the, the death of people and the coming of the Lord, they've read a whole bunch of stuff into this and they've tried to mine this for a number of other things that are just terribly not important and certainly not the reason why Paul was writing. 
issues of rapture and how we are taken up and the timing of that rapture, the timing of the Lord's return, how immediate was it supposed to be, or, or even this idea of an intermediate state, what happens to people between the point when they die and when the Lord will return to resurrect them from the graves. Paul doesn't seem to care about any of that in particular. What is clear is simply this, that people had died and the Lord had not returned yet. And for some reason, the Thessalonians thought that these two things were an issue with one another. That, that the people who died perhaps had not actually been believers because they didn't persevere until Christ returned. Or, or that they perhaps had thought that Christ had returned, but they didn't know about it or something like that as we get kind of in Second Thessalonians. Perhaps what they had given to them were some of the sayings of Jesus that then confused them about the fact that these people had even died. Maybe they, they had heard a saying of Jesus like in John 10, where Jesus talks about his sheep hearing his voice. He says, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Maybe the Thessalonians had heard passages like that. Maybe they had heard John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then they watched their fellow believers die. And they said, well, Frank is dead. And Frank was the best of all of us. Frank had a faith that was unlike any other. And I can't match Frank. What am I going to do? If Frank was not one who had eternal life, if he died, even though Jesus said he wouldn't, what good does my faith do? Perhaps this is the kind of thing that has happened that Paul is trying to address. The first thing that I really want to press into you before we talk about tempering your sorrow is the rightness of that sorrow, the rightness of grief. Because honestly, Christians sometimes are pressed to only experience joy and happiness and to rejoice before the Lord. Listen to a number of our worship songs. Our worship songs sound like this. It is hard to find songs that we sing in church that we can express lament and grief and sorrow in. I think that there is something about the way we want to present ourselves to the world as though all we do is rejoice that the Lord has only made us happy and nothing can dent that happiness. I think that there's even a, a sense of our own faithfulness before God. As we hear Paul in Philippians 4, just a couple of pages back in your Bible, say things like, rejoice, again I say, rejoice. And we think, well, if, if we are meant to rejoice, if that is a command that Christ has given to us, then how in the world could we ever be sorrowful? How can we be filled with, with grief? But we need to remember that in that very same book, Paul, who tells them that they must rejoice, also talks about his own sorrow. Epaphroditus was sent to the Philippians, and Epaphroditus apparently got very, very ill and almost died. And Paul was saddened that he couldn't be with the Philippians, and he was even sadder at the fact that Epaphroditus, who was an incredible help to him, was close to death. And Paul writes this in Philippians 2. He says, But God had mercy on him, that is Epaphroditus, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So it's clear that Paul knew that there would be grief in his life if Epaphroditus had died. More grief than what he was even feeling at that very moment. Paul knew, as well as all of us do, that grief is going to be part of this life. There's nothing wrong with owning that. There's nothing wrong with being sorrowful. Just as Paul has said, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, he has also said you are to weep 
with those who weep. It really is not any more faithful nor any better to the outside world to deal with sorrow and grief by just keeping a stiff upper lip and singing, it is well with my soul. That is no more of a faithful response than having grief in your life. It might at times be necessary, and frankly, at times it might just be rank disobedience because you do at times need to have sorrow and do at times need to have grief. So we are to grieve the loss of loved ones. It isn't wrong. It isn't disobedient. It doesn't show that you're lacking in faith or stoutness. But it is rather just a frank acknowledgement that the world we live in is not the world that God will eventually bring to us. It is an acknowledgement that death still happens in this world, that sorrowful things still happen in this world, that God's plan of recreation and God's plan of making everything right again has not come to its fullness. But... Even as we truly grieve, we need to make sure that that is tempered, that that sorrow is not overwhelming. It should be calmed and sanctified and eased by the hope that we have in the gospel. Paul says you cannot grieve as others who do not have hope. That doesn't mean we don't grieve, but it does mean that our grief and our sorrow look decidedly different than those who have no hope. The Greeks generally had no real hope after death. Death was a final state. There was a certitude about it. That once you died, there was no resurrection. There was no coming back. And, and even the sort of idea that you might go and be present with them in some sort of afterworld state was such a foggy and vague hope that it wasn't even really lodged as a hope. Once you lost someone, that person was gone. I think that one of the things that we think about when we hear people who have no hope in our day and age, although it would have been very far from Paul's mind are people who would suggest that there is no God, that atheists live without hope in the world. When they lose someone, they might say trite little things like, well, she lives in my memory or I will always remember her. But honestly, that is just sentimental drivel and it's out of step with everything that they confess to believe. There is no hope for them. When they lose somebody, that pile of atoms has ceased to be the pile of atoms that they loved. And you can make that pile of atoms and, and the molecules that have formed the person that you happen to have loved, well, you can make it sound like that has some sort of spiritual significance or make it sound as a glorious pile of atoms. Carl Sagan, uh, the famous, famous physicist, but he also just had a, a TV show and he was kind of an entertainment guy as well tried to make atheism and evolution make sense with what we know when we see one another and we look one another in the eye and trying to make sense of the fact that people have a glory about them. He said, our ancestors worshiped the sun and they were far from foolish. It makes good sense to revere the sun and the stars because we are their children. In other words, all the atoms that make you up came from the stars and as supernova exploded, it made heavier elements and eventually it found its way into you and you are the stuff of stars, right? That makes you sound nice. Listen, you are the stuff of animal waste and you are the stuff of garbage heaps and you are the stuff of dirt because the same atoms that were in those stars were in all those things as well. You notice he doesn't talk about it like that because it doesn't make you sound awesome. 
It kind of makes you sound pathetic and normal. And this is exactly the kind of thing that has happened. You're just a pile of atoms if atheism is true. There's no sorrow that can ever be tempered by hope because there is no hope. Because they're just combinations of molecules that happen to be fortuitous that gave a sense of being in life. Once that is gone, once those atoms cease to function correctly, those lives are gone. Paul is saying our grief can't be like theirs because we don't live like there is no hope. We have a better hope. There was an overwhelming sadness here in Thessalonia simply because of the death of their loved ones. And so Paul is trying to undo that. Paul is trying to say, hey, there is hope and you cannot just grieve the way you've been grieving. God grieves the death of people. One of the best elements of this and obvious examples of this comes in the book of John in chapter 11. Jesus has delayed going to Lazarus because he wants, frankly, Lazarus to die. And he wants to be sure that he is good and dead because he knows that when he goes there, he is going to raise him from the dead. But what does he do when he actually gets to the tomb? He weeps. And that is a man who knows that that person is going to come out of the grave on his own request here in just a moment. Grief is godly. Grief is good, but it cannot be our final or only response. The Lord promises us better things. So while our sorrow and grief is real, it has to always be tempered and changed and calmed by the hope that the gospel gives. Temper your sorrow in the Lord. But then what? The question becomes, what is that hope? What is the truth of the hope? And there, I would point you to point number two, trust in your solidarity with the Lord. Trust in your solidarity with the Lord. Paul begins to answer what that hope is in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is the time where we should point out that for Paul, hope is not what so many people call hope. When we talk about hope and we say, I hope something will happen, what we mean is I wish that it would happen. It's my desire that it would happen. But typically there's no more to it than that. We might have some reason to think that it's going to happen or some reason to think that it's not going to happen, but we have no control of it. There's no certainty in it. And so we simply say, well, I want this to be true. I desire for this to be true. I hope that this is true. For many people, this is exactly the kind of hope that they have. So there are a few true atheists in the world, but their percentage is really, really low. The vast majority of people, whether they're Christian or not, believe that they're going to see their loved ones after they die, that they will go to them, that in some spiritual way or some physical way, they will be in the presence of their loved one. And if you press them on why they believe that, their hope is basically just what we talked about. It, it's a desire. It's, a, it's a, a, a thought, a fleeting faith that they will be able to see their loved one. And certainly ours is based on faith, but not in the same way. Our hope is better than that. Our hope is more certain than that. And Paul says, for since. He is grounding this belief. This is the reason why we believe it. The reason why we believe that we should have hope is because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he he directs us directly to the center of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and on the third day was resurrected and raised again 
according to the scriptures. This is exactly the very thing that the gospel proclaims. That if we trust ourselves to that, that Jesus will save us from our sins. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't mention anything about sins here. It's just the bare fact that Jesus died and rose again. But he goes on to explain exactly why that is. He says, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. Probably, probably a little bit more accurately put. So God will also, because of Jesus, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says, so also. The, the ESV, even so, doesn't make great sense of the sentence. And the sentence is tough anyways, but... So also is probably a better way to put it. What he means is, just as what happened to Jesus, that he died and he rose again, so also God will do this for you. Okay? So if Jesus died and rose again, and if you believe that, then you have a very strong hope, a very strong reason to believe that God will do exactly the same for you. This is then backed up by the fact that it is, according to the ESV, through Jesus, but I think better because of Jesus. Because what Jesus has done. Because what happens to Jesus happens to you. It is because of what Jesus has done, both in dying and being resurrected again, that we have hope that we too will die and be resurrected again. And I think that this needs at least a little bit of explanation. We must trust in our solidarity our union in Christ. The more I read through Paul, the more this is the center of everything that happens that's good to us in the gospel. It is through our union with Christ. So we can talk about justification, about the fact that God will declare us innocent and, and in the right. These are good things. We want to have those things. We can talk about adoption. We can talk about the inheritance that is coming to us. We can talk about our eventual glorification and the holiness that we have. We can talk about all those things. And the question is, how do all those things come to us? The center of all of that, the reason why we are justified, the reason why we are adopted, the reason why we get an inheritance, the reason why we eventually receive glory, the reason why we become holy and are sanctified is all because we are unified with Christ because he is what we would call the second Adam. So in the first Adam, who is, well, he's Adam. So when God made him, God gave him a nature. He gave him a human type of nature. And this is somewhat explained throughout Genesis when Genesis continues to talk about things being created according to their kind. And they gave birth to other animals according to their kind. Now, we don't know exactly what kind means. We don't know if it means the same thing as a species in biological taxonomy or if it means a broader category than that, but it certainly means at least this. Pigs don't give birth to strawberries, okay? And that's going to ruin strawberries for you for a couple of weeks until you forgot that I said that. That's a, not a pretty visual image, but nevertheless, that's what is true, that, that pigs give birth to other pigs, that human beings pass down their nature to other human beings. You don't have a, a nature or a, a being passing down a different nature. That what is passed down is passed down to the same kind of thing. And so Adam has a human nature, but Adam falls. Adam trusts in the serpent and he trusts in others besides trusting in the Lord. And that fall is not just a minor thing. It changes him completely from the very inside out. 
And God looked at him previously and he said, you will surely die. And we shouldn't think that God just delays on fulfilling that promise. But the moment that Adam takes that, he does indeed surely die. His nature has been turned from one that faced life in obedience to God, that one that turned away from the very sustenance of life for it. He turned and rebelled against God. He wasn't just a rebeller, okay? He, didn't, he, he wasn't just somebody who happened to have rebelled, but he is now a rebeller. He is now one who has rebelling sort of hardwired into his nature, and therefore he passes that nature down to us. And so all of us are born with that same fallen nature. We have it hardwired in us to rebel against God. This is exactly what Ephesians 2 is getting at. We follow Adam's nature so that in our natural state, we too are dead, just as Adam died. Paul says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Now when we hear that, he can't be talking about physical death because these people were alive. I mean, they were reading the the book that he wrote for them. He wrote a letter to them. Certainly we think that he's not writing to people in graves. They were dead though. They were dead in the sense that because of the nature of the way they lived, they were doomed to die. That was the only end that could ever possibly come to them. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked because you were following your father, Adam. It was part of your nature. He talks about how you lived like this in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... God's incredible mercy to people has come to us now because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And that word together is an incredibly important word. And probably in that entire little clause is the one word that's overlooked the most. We read that and we think, oh, made us alive. That's regeneration. That's the really important bit. Or with Christ. That's the really important bit that it's with Christ, but it's together with Christ that really matters. The reason why we live. The reason why we're justified. The reason why we eventually get glorified is because God has rewired us. God has remade our nature and unified us with Christ. He has made us one with Christ. So that what Christ is in his human nature, we are in our human nature. What happens to Christ happens to us. As Christ is the new progenitor of a new creation, we share in his likeness, just as we used to share in Adam's likeness. The fate of Adam was our fate, and now the fate of Christ is our fate. He has made us new again. We no longer are an original creation, but we have been made new in Christ. And so being unified in Christ, we share with him in everything that he does. This is why Paul says, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you too will die and rise again. It is natural because you've been unified with Christ. Just as being part of Adam means that you're going to die, now being part of Christ means that you have to, you have to live. His death is our death. His life is our life. Unified with Christ, we share in his nature and we share in his fate. Romans 5.17 says something exactly along these lines. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you died in Adam, but now having been unified to Christ, you will certainly reign in righteousness. He goes on in Romans 6, 5, just a few verses later to say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you are united to Christ, you die with him and you are raised with him. And so Paul is looking at these Thessalonians and he's saying, friends, if this is what you believe, if, if you are actually hitched to Jesus in this way, then there is no reason to fear death. There is no reason to think that death will have a final word over you. If you are in solidarity with Christ, if you have been unified to him, if you are one with him, then his resurrection is like your resurrection. If he got up out of that grave, you have every reason to believe that not only will you, but your loved ones in the Lord will as well. And so when we read in here this common and, and well-used euphemism of falling asleep. Greeks use this all the time. I think people today use this all the time, that people have fallen asleep. But for the Greeks, it was just a euphemism. It was a nice way of talking about dying, but they never thought that these people would wake up again. In the mouth of Paul, this thing almost ceases to be a euphemism. It sounds a lot more like just what happens you die for a short period of time and then you will rise again. Just like you lay down, you lose consciousness and then you get back up in the morning. That There will be a day when the sun will call you and you will come up out of your grave. Your loved ones will come up out of their grave in the Lord. We are indeed much better described as sleeping than as dying because there is every hope that with the return of the sun we will one day rise up again. And so then, thirdly, we should triumph in the splendor of the Lord. We temper our sorrow in the Lord, we trust our solidarity with the Lord, and we triumph in the splendor of the Lord. The rest of the remaining passage, honestly, is fairly straightforward, and I don't think Paul means or intends much outside of what we have here. He says this is a word that we've gotten from Jesus. The rest of this, I think, was fairly evident in Paul's preaching to them elsewhere. But he says, listen, but you need to know in the rest of this, this is a word that we have gotten from the Lord. This is what he means to say. Those who are alive are not favored in some way. They're not going to precede those who have died. The people who have died have not been disobedient to the Lord necessarily, and therefore God took them away. Or they were weak in the faith, and so God put an end to them. He's not saying that you have a special place of honor simply because you're alive. The dead actually will precede those who are alive. And Christ will return precisely in the way that he went, in clouds, in glory. So at the ascension of our Lord, in the book of Acts, he goes in the clouds. Two angels appear as the men of Galilee are standing there, slack-jawed, looking up into heaven, wondering what's going to happen now. And the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which is kind of a weird question because if you saw somebody floating up to heaven, that's a really good place to look, right? So that's, that's a good thing to watch. And he says, I don't know why you're doing this. Why are you stand, staring up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He says, we who are alive will be left and then we will meet up with them in the clouds. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
lest you think that that is just a way to wake up the dead, and certainly it'll wake up the dead, that is also a grave indication that this Christ is showing up as a conqueror. He's coming back not simply as a savior. He's not coming back as a lamb. He's coming back as a warrior. Each one of these things indicates sort of a military command. Now, each one of these can be used in a different way as well, but it seems like the idea here is that there is a, a military command that's coming, that he is coming back in triumph. The cry of command was often used of people who were in military commands to demand something. And given the fact that he is calling the dead up to be with him, he is making them part of his army. He commands them to come up. It is the voice of an archangel, the first of God's messengers, who is screaming ahead of him the cry of charge and the trumpet of God announcing the victory of God in battle. Jesus Christ is coming back as a warrior who has conquered over his enemies. So this is not just some sort of happy scene of reunion where people get to see their loved ones and they get to see Jesus again. But it is a fitting demonstration that those who are called to be with him have overcome the world by persevering even unto death, just as Jesus Christ himself has overcome the world. That they get his reward because they have done as he did. In him and by his grace. Jesus Christ conquers over the world by resisting the nature of the world and by being faithful even unto death you also conquer over the world. This is everything that the book of Revelation is getting to you about. When it uses this word of conquerors, which it uses frequently, it doesn't mean people who have triumphed over others. It doesn't mean people who have, have killed their enemies and have slaughtered them and therefore they are conquerors. It means simply people who have held onto the faith of Jesus Christ until the end and they will be seen as conquerors as Christ resurrects them from the grave. What Paul is holding out to us is not just that we get to see our loved ones, which is clearly what he's getting at, at least in part. Because they're concerned they're never going to know these people again. And I think that part of the issue is you will know these people again. You will see them again. And better than just seeing them in some sort of ghostly spiritual form, you will see them in a real, true, physical form. Be able to hug them and love them. Or that you simply get to be with Christ, which is true and good and glorious and really the main part of this passage. But it is also the fact that when Christ returns, we will be triumphant in him as well. It is not the signal of our defeat, our death anymore. Seems like it always is. Seems like it is the sign that we are feeble, sign of oppressors over those who are oppressed that they can kill them and take away their lives. It seems like it is, it is the defeat of us as death claims us. It seems like it's, it's the victory of Satan as Satan allows his one tool, death, to claim us, but it is no longer that way. Jesus shows that he has conquered over death and Hades in his resurrection, and because he holds the keys to that, no one stays dead that he resurrects. No one stays dead outside of his leaving them in that. So we triumph in that. Not in our own abilities, not in our own victory, but in Jesus's. St. Paul meant for these words to be a comfort to the Thessalonians. The world can't conquer you because Christ has conquered over the world. Death is not a victor over you 
because Christ was victorious over death. And if you are unified with Jesus, his fate is yours. So this great and glorious king, this God-man, the one who is unlike anyone else, who is more wonderful and powerful, glorious, who is more kind and compassionate and wondrous and majestic than even the most wonderful star in the sky and the most powerful of princes and kings. You get to be with him forever. You get to know him, to enjoy his presence and the presence of the saints forever. This ought to be an encouragement. You will always be with Jesus. Our great God, our Redeemer, our friend, and our Savior, we will always be with him. And this is a really helpful reminder today as we are coming to take the Lord's Supper in a time. It is good to remember that we will always be with him and be encouraged in that. The Lord's Supper is both backward-looking and forward-looking. It looks back on the death of Jesus Christ as nourishment for our souls, as the very life-giving fountain that we have. But it also looks forward. It is nothing more than a foreshadow of the great day where we get to dine with him in heaven. He is really and truly with us, although spiritually and not physically, in the taking of the Lord's Supper. We ought to never deny that. But it is not the way that we will be with him forever. We will be with him physically and in reality, sitting at a meal with him, which is better. The Lord's Supper speaks not only of that which is behind, but of a better feast forthcoming and a better presence forthcoming. This is all given to us by the work that Jesus Christ has done to unify us to him so that where he is, there we may be. Friends, as we go to take that meal, I pray that these words encourage you today. They encourage you in your faithfulness, knowing that Jesus is with you, knowing that there is nothing that can conquer over you if you truly trust and believe in him. I hope that it encourages your perseverance through difficult times, knowing that those difficult times and even death has been given to you, but that it is not the final word. That there might be some in this room who delay and stay alive until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But many in this room will die. Die faithfully, knowing that Jesus Christ has conquered over death. And certainly, let this temper any grief and sorrow that we have. Let this encourage you this day for these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. What you have decreed before all time, we pray that it is so. Take sinners, make them one with your Son, give them grace and faith, and pour out on them all of the goodness that Jesus Christ has won for us. Do this, not only for their sakes, but for your great name. Give us hope in this gospel, that nothing can remove us from your love, even our great enemy, death. And therefore let death, even as it looms over us, only serve to draw us nearer to our hope in Jesus Christ. We pray these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.